Please turn your attention to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, a passage we're going to look at this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. That's what Luke writes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up for the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we know that you use your word to speak to us. That you stand behind it and speak through it by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Give us open ears, give us open eyes, and receptive hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in this Advent season, you know that our sermon series is on songs for the Savior. Music is such a big part of this Advent season that it is appropriate to consider the first Christmas hymns uh, together in this season. And uh, so we started off considering the Magnificat, sung by Mary. And then last week we, we looked at the Benedictus, sung by Zechariah. This morning we come to the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, sung by the angels, which makes this song stand out because all the other songs that we'll consider are sung by humans, but this song is sung by the angels, some of the most mysterious, powerful, glorious beings in the Bible. When people encounter an angel in Scripture, they either want to bow down and worship or flee in fear. When the angels reveal themselves to these shepherds keeping watch, at night over the flocks. Imagine what this must have been like. It began like like every other night, a mundane night, like a night guard starting his overnight shift. These shepherds were doing what they always do, washing their sheep at night. When without warning, an angel of the Lord appears and the glory of God shines around him, and no wonder these angels are absolutely terrified. And what is announced is this good news of great joy for all the people, the announcement of the birth of Christ. And Luke tells us, right after this delivery of good news, a great company of the heavenly host appears in heaven. 
Um, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is seized in the garden and Peter tries to defend him with a sword, remember, Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away and he says, do you think I can't call on my father and he will put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion in those days was 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions of angels would be 72,000 angels. I'm not sure it was this many, but Luke says a great company of the heavenly host. Literally, the heavenly army appears. So hundreds, if not thousands, of angels in the sky. Not to wage spiritual warfare, but to sing praise to God. I, I don't know what the best stadium concert experience you've had in life, but this is far better. This is a song of glory and peace sung by thousands of angels in the sky. And I think we need to hear this song because we live in a world desperately in need of peace. I've been saying this. I mean, it's, it's obvious that we live in a world at war. There's a war in Ukraine. Now there's a war in Israel and Palestine. There are political wars at home. And peace seems all but impossible. We, we live in a world desperately in need of peace. And we live in a world desperately in need of inner peace. I read an article recently in The Messenger entitled, What is Going On at Harvard? And the article went on to report that more than a third of freshmen at Harvard sought mental health counseling this year, which a writer at the Harvard Crimson attributed to the students' ever more elusive search for success in a hyper-connected culture and a pressure cooker environment. Similarly, Jonathan Haidt, the social scientist at NYU, has a book coming out entitled this, The Anxious Generation, How the Great Rewiring of Childhood is Causing an Epidemic of Mental Illness. Jonathan Haidt explores why the mental health of adolescents plunged around 2010. Many people have noted this. Around 2010, rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide among adolescents suddenly rose. I mean, all the, all the lights on the dashboard, all these markers suddenly lit up at the same time around 2010. This epidemic of teen mental illness didn't just hit the U.S., but countries around the world, and Height studies why. Concludes that the reason wasn't the pandemic, as many people think. It was the rise of social media in 2010 that the pandemic accentuated. Social media, he says, resulted in an epidemic of teen mental illness. My friends, we live in a world desperately in need of peace. Outer peace and inner peace. International peace and internal peace. Peace between us and peace within us. This song that the angels sing is about how the birth of Christ brings peace on earth. I'd like to consider it together with you. I think it's very timely. And I want to consider three questions that this song of peace, uh, this text addresses. Who hears the song, what the song is about, and how we should respond. Who hears the song, what the song is about, and how we should respond. First, who hears the song? Uh, when you have a baby, I wonder who it is that you announce the news of the baby to first. Many of you have had babies, and you know exactly who it is. It's, it's your family. It's your parents. It's your siblings. When Jesus is born, look who the first people God announces the birth to. Some shepherds in the fields at night. We have a fairly romantic view of shepherds, but that wasn't the view of shepherds in the first century. In the first century culture, 
shepherds were at the bottom of the ladder of power and prestige. I mean, you could not imagine a more humble, lowly position than the position of a shepherd. They were humble, they were lowly, and they were, they were outsiders. They were literally outsiders. They lived in the open country by themselves for long periods of time, cut off from human community. In this passage, they're not even named. I mean, most of the characters in the, in the, in the Advent story, Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and, and, and uh, uh, Joseph, are named. But these shepherds don't even receive a name. That's how outside they are. Even this Advent narrative, they're, they're not even named. They're humble, they're outsiders, and they, in the first century, had a morally dubious reputation. Shepherds were looked on with suspicion and scorn. Oftentimes, practically viewed as, as thieves, preying on lonely travelers. They, because of this reputation, were disqualified from serving as legal witnesses in that day. A third century rabbi said this, There is no more despised occupation in the world than a shepherd. So then the obvious question is, beyond a romantic view of shepherds, why does God announce the good news first to shepherds? Of all the people that they could announce this good news of great joy to, why the shepherds? Why not Caesar Augustus? Why not the powerful and the wealthy and the important? I think it's because God is communicating that the birth of Christ is for all people, especially the humble the outsiders, sinners and not saints, screw-ups and not people who have their lives all together. See, the only people who could get tickets to the angel's song on this night, if the only people who could get tickets were the well-connected, the powerful and the wealthy, we would know. No one would have to tell us who that song is for. It's for the wealthy. It's for the well-connected. But God sends the angels to sing for the shepherds. as a way of saying that the birth of Christ is for the humble and the downtrodden, and those who are left outside, and the forgotten, for sinners, for morally dubious people. You see, God in this song, and to whom it's sung, is turning the values and the status of the world upside down. He's redefining who's inside and who's outside, who's important and who's unimportant. Back in January of 2021, Lord Sumpton, a former Supreme Court justice in the UK, was on the BBC debating whether the government-mandated lockdown was a proportionate response to the pandemic. He reasoned that, on the one hand, the elderly were more affected by COVID, but on the other hand, the young were more affected by the lockdown. He concluded that the lockdown was punishing too many people for the greater good. Which prompted the question, if you do not lock down, are the elderly to be sacrificed for the good of the young? And Lord Sumpton, as a retiree, was ready to make that sacrifice. Here's what he said. He said, my children and my grandchildren's lives are worth much more than mine because they've got a lot more of it ahead. In the context of this discussion, he said, I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. Now, as you might imagine, that comment set off a firestorm. Sumpton was immediately confronted on air by Deborah James, a woman vulnerable to COVID due to her cancer, and she protested. She said, with all due respect, I am the person who you say their life is not valuable. And Sumpton interrupted her with a clarification that didn't really help. He said, I didn't say your life was not valuable. I said it was less valuable. <laughs> and as you might imagine, there was a flood of moral outrage 
in response to the suggestion that lives of the young are more valuable than the lives of the old, or that the lives of the healthy are more valuable than the lives of the sick. Moral outrage, and rightly so. I ask you to consider, where does this idea come from? Of equality, of human equality of life, where does that idea come from? Plato, the father of Western philosophy, would have said, of course lives are of unequal value. Just look around. Some are men, some are women, some are Greeks, some are barbarians, some are free, some are slaves. Some are rich and some are poor. Some are wise, some are foolish, some are strong and some are weak. All we see in nature is, is difference and inequality. Compare any two people on one attribute and you will conclude that one has more than the other. So he would say, how can you insist that every person is equal when nature tells us that they're not? So, for example, I've always dreamed of being Michael Jordan's equal on the basketball court, but obviously, I'm not. So where does equal value come from? Science can't give us equal value. Science tells us how different we are in height and weight and so on. Economic utility can't give us equal value because we have different economic capacities. We do. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener makes the case that equal human value and rights in the West are grounded in a Christian anthropology. That is Genesis. We get this idea from Genesis in the, in the West. We get it from Genesis that tells us that God created us in his image. As humans, we are made in the image of God, and therefore, because he says so, we all have equal dignity and equal value before him. See, our value doesn't come from anything intrinsic to us. Our, our value is extrinsic from God who says, who created us, and says that we're all created in God's image, and so we're equal and have equal dignity. And therefore, Scrivener argues that the notion of human equality in the West is a gift of Christianity. It doesn't come from Plato. It doesn't come from science. It doesn't come from nature. Scrivener says it comes from the Christian worldview, from a Christian anthropology. But he says in the West, many are trying to get rid of Christianity, which is like sawing off the very branch we're sitting on. You see, my friends, the shepherds in Luke 1 are part of this Christian anthropology. I mean, they're, they're people who are not valued by their culture. They're social outsiders at the bottom of the ladder. But they're highly valued because God says they are. And he sends his angels to sing for them. And in so doing, God turns the values and status of the world upside down. From Genesis to Revelation, God has a special care for the poor and the humble and the small and the outsiders and the nameless and the widows and the orphans. And the birth of Christ is part of this. It's for all people, including the humble and the downtrodden and the outsiders and the forgotten and those struggling with sin. So who hears this song? It's the shepherds washing their flocks by night. What does this song say? Secondly, let's look at this. The angel's song, I think, ensures that we don't miss the significance of the birth of Christ. I mean, think about this. this the greatest event in the history of the world happens. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, steps into history as a human. I mean, this is, this is the greatest moment in history, and it's not headline news. Neil Armstrong, when the, the first man to walk on the moon, that, that news was broadcast across the country. I mean, everybody heard about that. 9-11, when it happened, was on every news channel, on the front page of every newspaper. I mean, most of us of age remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when 9-11 happened. You couldn't miss it. 
And yet when the God of the universe steps into history, initially only a few shepherds know. But it's the angel's song that ensures that we don't miss the significance of the birth of Christ. This song, I would suggest to you, as short as it is, provides a commentary on the birth of Christ. The angels tell us the cosmic significance of the birth of Christ. There, there's an impact in heaven and on earth. The first impact is in heaven. He says the, birth, the, the, the angels say the birth of Christ brings glory to God in heaven. If you know your Bibles, you know that there is a never-ending worship service going on in heaven, even now as we are gathered. John, in Revelation 4 and 5, when he gets a sneak peek into this worship service in heaven, sees and hears voices of many angels numbering in thousands, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousand, singing, gathered around the throne, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. We are told in Scripture, interestingly, a few things that cause angels in heaven to especially rejoice and get especially excited. In Luke 15, Jesus says, There is more joy in heaven among the angels of God over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. 1 Peter 1, 12, says the good news of the gospel is something into which the angels long to look. Think about this for a moment. We're told there that the angels are witnesses and spectators to the drama of salvation. They, they watch the unfolding of God's plan of redemption with great interest. What's going to happen? What's God going to do next? And when Christ is born, the climax of God's redemptive plan, the Savior that's been promised all through the Old Testament appears. The angels get really excited. And they explode in worship. They fill up the sky praising God. These mysterious, glorious, powerful beings never get tired of meditating on the gospel and rejoicing in the gospel. The birth of Christ brings glory to God in heaven, and then secondly, it brings uh, peace on earth. And I pause for a moment to consider what kind of peace is this? We, we throw this word around all the time in this season, peace. What kind of peace is this? See, I think our concept, our popular concept of peace comes from Greek culture, where the peace, the word peace, primarily has a negative definition. Peace as the absence of war, the absence of conflict. So if you don't have war, you have peace. If you don't have conflict, you have peace. But the New Testament writers took the concept of peace from the Old Testament, from this word shalom, which is not a negative word. It is a positive word. It refers to God's rich and generous blessing. So, for example, when a Hebrew person met another Hebrew person on the street and greeted them in a customary greeting, shalom, they weren't just saying, I hope you don't get into a fight. No, they were saying, I wish God's rich and generous blessing be upon you. Because the Hebrew concept of shalom refers to a completeness, a, a wholeness, a soundness, a well-being. And so the piece that the angels sing about is much richer and robust a concept than we usually think. And it is more fundamental than we usually think because we, as I start off this sermon, are oftentimes looking for a political peace or psychological peace. We're looking for a peace between ourselves and a peace within ourselves. But the peace that the angels sing about is, is first and fundamentally a peace between humans and God. Our Advent hymns capture it. 
Hark the herald angels sing. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the peace in view between God and sinners. Romans 5, on offer is peace, not between ourselves, but peace with God through Jesus Christ. If we need peace with God, it means only one thing. It means right out of the womb, we don't have peace with God. I mean, think of this picture. We've seen it a hundred times. A father in a store with his child, and the child wants to do something bad. The child wants to do something he's not supposed to do, and the father says, no, you can't do that. And the child looks at him and does it anyway, and then there are sharp words, and there are tears, and a broken relationship. We've seen it a hundred times. And it's a picture, I think, of sin. What sin is, is disobeying our, disobeying our Heavenly Father, doing things that he says we shouldn't do, doing them, or not doing things that we, he says we should do. And the result of that is a broken relationship. See, sin is not just breaking rules, it's breaking a relationship. And we have all sinned, the Bible says, whether actively in rebellion or passively in indifference. The result is we have a broken relationship with God. We are estranged from him. We are at enmity with him. And the question is, how then can we be reconciled with a father when we continue to rebel against him and we continue to sin in, in, in small and big ways? And this is the good news of the gospel that brings great joy to all people. Ephesians 2.14 says, Christ is our peace. Christ has accomplished peace between us and God on the cross. On the cross in his death, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And he removed the enmity and the hostility between us and God because of our sin. And Jesus gave us his righteousness. His favor, God's favor and blessing rests upon us because of what Christ has done. And the result is we have peace with God. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, not a subjective peace, an objective peace accomplished by Jesus Christ, declared by God himself. Not based on what we do, but by faith in Jesus Christ based on what Christ has done. And this peace now that we step into through Christ with God is not just a negative absence of conflict. No, it's much richer than that. It's shalom. It's completeness. It's favor. It's blessing. And I think this is the fundamental objective peace that the angels are singing about. And it leads to other things. It's this fundamental objective peace that leads to the subjective peace that we oftentimes want every day. and Peace between us and peace within us. It's this vertical peace with God that if we receive it first, it translates and we are able to experience horizontal peace with each other and inward peace in our hearts. Hiro Inado was 18 when he enlisted in the Imperial Army Infantry in Japan. He was trained for intelligence training in guerrilla warfare and covert operations. And so in 1944, he was sent to Labang Island, southwest of Manila in the Philippines, in the waiting months of World War II. His orders when he was placed there were to prevent enemy attacks on the island, never to surrender, and never to take his life. And so he began engaging in guerrilla warfare. But no one told him in 1945 that Japan had surrendered and the war was over. No one told him. Leaflets were dropped over the island with the news, but he thought it was a ruse by his enemies, trying to trick him into surrendering. So he continued to fight guerrilla warfare on that island. 
surviving off bananas and coconuts, killing island inhabitants for 29 years. He stayed in the jungle, living in underground caves and gathering intelligence on enemy movements, living as if he was at war, not realizing that peace had been accomplished. In 1974, 29 years after the war was over, he was discovered on this island. He was told that Japan was at peace, and his commanding officer relieved him of his duties. Interestingly, at the time of surrender, 29 years after the war was over, he still had a sword, a functioning rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. He was 52 when he recognized and experienced Japan at peace. He was pardoned for crimes committed when he thought he was at war. In the subsequent years of peace, he reconnected with his family who hadn't seen him for many, many years. He went dancing, he took driving lessons, he went traveling. He met a Japanese woman and got married. And he died at age 91 in 2014. My friends, hero Onado's life changed drastically when he recognized an objective peace. The war is over. His lifestyle changed, his relationships changed, his emotional life changed. And it's what happens when we experience the objective peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's not an automatic thing. We receive it by faith in Christ. It's peace for those on whom God's favor rests, those who, who receive uh, this peace by Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the hostility has ended. The war has come to an end. We have peace with God. And it's this vertical peace that then leads to a horizontal and inward peace. See, if we have peace with God, if we have peace in our relationship with God, then we can be peacemakers in our relationships with others. If we know that God has forgiven our sins, if we know that we've received God's grace, we can be gracious with others and forgive their sins against us. If we have peace with God, we can extend that peace to others. We can be peacemakers. And if we have peace with God, we can experience that peace within. Peace with God means this robust, rich favor and blessing of God rests upon us. We know God as our Heavenly Father who cares for us. And if he cares for the birds and the lilies, how much more will he care for us, his sons and daughters? And that is the beginning of this profound and deep inward peace. Knowing that we're in the hands of a Heavenly Father who loves us so richly. What is this song about? It's about the birth of Christ that brings glory to God in heaven. And peace on earth. An objective peace with God that leads to a subjective peace in our lives. Thirdly then, how should we respond? I think the shepherds model two responses to the angel's song. The first response is to go and see. Look at verses 15 and 16. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Once this angel appears with good news of great joy, and you hear this angelic choir of thousands in the heaven singing, you can't say, okay, enough excitement for one evening, time to get back to work. These shepherds don't respond. They can't stop talking about what's just happened, and they hatch this plan to go and see. Let's go now to Bethlehem and see. Because if the birth of Christ 
brings this objective peace that leads to a subjective peace, what we most need. We owe it to ourselves to investigate, to go and see. There's a book that came out last August entitled Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. It's an interesting book. It tells a story of 12 men and women from, different, from five different countries and different backgrounds, philosophers, artists, historians, engineers, scientists among these 12, who all came to faith in Jesus Christ. What the stories of these 12 have in common is they all start off as enthusiasts for the claims and writings of Richard Dawkins and the new atheists. But after in investigating the arguments of Richard Dawkins more closely, they come to realize that the arguments are not as strong as they thought. And the arguments for Christianity are more intellectually convincing and robust than those for atheism, and they become Christians. In other words, they find Richard Dawkins not a hindrance to coming to faith, but an instrument of coming to faith. As evidence, I think, that Christianity can stand up to scrutiny and rational investigation. You don't have to check your mind at the door to become a Christian. The first thing the shepherds did was to go and see. So it's an invitation to you this morning, if you've not experienced the objective peace that Christ brings, this is an invitation to you to investigate, to go and see. Second response to the birth of Christ, the shepherd's model, is to go and tell, verses 17 and 18. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And do all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. If you are convinced about everything that this passage says about Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the one who brings objective peace with God, that is then the doorway to subjective peace. Then like the shepherds, we need to go and tell. We need to share this good news. Mark and Amy Stabell, many of you know them because they used to be part of our congregation and now are missionaries that we support. They visited us last July as part of their fundraising um, efforts. Mark and Amy Stabell are on their way to the Democratic Republic of Congo with their three young boys. In their visit last July, we learned as they described how politically unstable this country is such that when they go there, they will have an evacuation plan always in place. It is a dangerous place to bring three young boys. And yet such is their conviction to go and tell. This conviction runs so deep that they're willing to go and risk their own personal safety. There are places, challenging places, where there is a need to go and tell. I came across recently another challenging place where there is a need to go and tell the gospel, and it's very close to home, because it's student culture. In the process of searching for another student ministry pastor, I had a conversation over email with an associate professor of pastoral theology. He's also the dean of student development at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He has over 40 years of experience with RUF, which is a nationwide campus ministry of our denomination. And he said to me in this conversation, he said, in his opinion, the hardest thing to find right now is an ordained or ordainable youth pastor. Of course, I was very curious. I said, can you shed any light on that? Why do you say that? Why do you see this? And here's what he shared. He says, these are the observations that I have. It's just, it's just me, but here's what I observe from my seat. 
about the current challenges in youth culture. He says, anxiety and depression are rampant. Many students are struggling with identity issues, making for even greater challenges. It's hard to compete with social media as an idol and companion. There's a greater liability working with students in a litigious culture. And on top of that, he said, there's academic pressure on kids from parents who seem more interested in getting them into an elite college than into heaven. And he concluded by saying, it's not a great day to be a teen in America. The cultural challenges are so great that many seminary graduates don't want to do student ministry. My friends, I would say that's all the more reason to do student ministry. That's why we need people to go and tell the gospel in our student culture. A culture right now that is rampant with depression and anxiety and confusion and pressure. How will our students hear the song of peace about the birth of Christ if no one goes? And tells them the good news. My friends, the birth of Christ is for the humble, for the outsiders, for the anxious, and for the depressed. Because the birth of Christ brings an objective peace with God that then leads to this subjective peace with one another and within ourselves. The response is to go and see and then go and tell. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song of the angels, this commentary on the birth of Christ that doesn't let us miss the cosmic significance of the birth of Christ. Glory to you in heaven and peace on earth. This profound peace, this fundamental peace that we first need with you and then with each other and with ourselves. Would you help us to experience this peace in this season? Through Jesus Christ. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.